welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor, wishing I was living it up in Marbella with two swimming pools and a paint box, but stuck at home instead with a covid nine-year-old. Never mind, let's <laughs> be this week's panel. Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. Brexit bulldog Steve Baker has shared his reading list on Twitter, and it includes some heavy hitters, including Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek. I wonder if Baker has actually read The Open Society and Its Enemies. Tell us what's behind this foray into political theory. Well, I imagine he wants to make himself look cleverer than he actually is, uh, and more literate. I think if you've got like a little Blade Runner thing where you can just zoom in the screen over and over, you can see that the spines of those books are largely unbroken um and none of them look like they've ever been read you know in the history of time if you did read them of course i mean like the rest of them hayek and all of that i mean you know you can find quite but you know Ludwig von Mises, it's like fine okay you know you're broadly in line popper he doesn't fucking get to have popper and if he had no. read, if he had he might have come across you know the central one of the central ideas in the open society which is not so much this value of freedom in, in its own right but th- this idea that like freedom makes for a more efficient country, for a more efficient system, because, you know, all policies have kind of unintended consequences. And as long as you open up to make sure that you can hear as many critical voices as possible, you might be able to work out what those unintended consequences are and respond to them and run your society in a better way. And I can't imagine what it was about the events of this week, watching someone stand on a stage and saying, fuck me, look what we've done with this Irish protocol, which might have brought that <laughs> into my mind at that particular time. But I did feel like it had some pertinence to the events that we were watching on the news. Popper fan Naomi Smith is Chief Exec at Breast for Britain. Hi, Naomi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Mick Clegg has been defending Facebook after whistleblower Francis Haugen alleged that, among other oh, things, God. <laughs> the company is responsible for damaging the mental health of teenage girls and for ethnic violence in Ethiopia. Nick Clegg presumably joined Facebook in the hope he could stop it damaging democracy and become a force for good in the world. And what would you like Nick Clegg to see uh, to see Nick Clegg doing now? Well, <laughs> I mean, given his anti-Midas touch, um, I mean, my appeal to him would be to please rejoin the Conservative Party and get stuck in. Um, uh, as I understand it, he was a, a member of KUKA, um, the Conservative uh, University. The Cambridge University Conservative Association, which I think he joined in order to be able to vote in its elections for a friend of his who was running for the committee. Um, and of course, he sort of famously worked for, for Leon Britton in, in Europe. So, you know, he, he knows them all. He's got good heritage there, uh, was very cosy with them um, in the Rose Garden and throughout coalition. So, you know, it wouldn't be a, an unfamiliar place for him. And yeah, I, I'd love him to sort of go in there and uh, due to due to that brand, what it's done to the Liberal Democrats and uh, Facebook. Ooh. No dinner invites for you then, Amy. Steve <laughs> Baker, on the other hand, we're going to be in a book, book club together. Alex Andreu is an actor, writer, singer and chef. Hi, Alex. Hello. Poland's top court has rejected the supremacy of EU law, which looks a bit like the start of a poll exit. There were big demos over the weekend in support of EU membership. Do you think Poland could really follow us out of the EU? I think it's highly unlikely um, for several reasons. I mean, first of all, the ruling party there 
says explicitly does not want to leave the EU. It's a it's a member of the ECR grouping in the European Parliament, which is Eurosceptic, anti-federalist, but pro-membership. Explicitly anti-membership parties in Poland are doing very badly and not showing no signs of a surge, uh, even in European elections. The second point, I think, uh, support for leaving the EU is nowhere near high enough. In the UK, it had been hovering around 40%, just over, just under for about a decade. In Poland, it is at its peak, sort of 15 to 17%. The economics are very, very different. Poland is the largest net beneficiary of EU budgets and Polish workers still the second largest emigrating group. So there's roughly 2 million Polish people work in other EU countries. And all of these factors, I think, make the threat of leaving the EU actually a weapon of opposition, not of popularity. So it is basically a massive vote loser. And it is actually the opposition coalition that sort of agitating the threat of an exit, newly under the stewardship of one Donald Tusk, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, He was elected leader of the opposition party in June, July, somewhere there. He's doing it to galvanize opposition against the incumbent law and justice party, basically, because Poland is, on the whole, very pro-membership. Well, it's always good to hear about what Donald Tusk is up to. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that doesn't mean, of course, that that they're not at the stage, you know, the UK was 25 years ago when, you know, UKIP started making noises. They might be, I don't know. This week on the show, we've plenty to talk over. Brexit is back with the latest wranglings over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you remember when we left at the beginning of 2020 and the government said it wasn't even going to mention the word anymore? (laughs) The ongoing autumn crisis that's exhausted Boris Johnson so much he's had to take a luxury break in Spain. And the Commons Committee report lambasting the government for its Covid failures. And on the extra bit for Patreon backers, I'll be asking the panel what thing they're completely unqualified for that they think they could do anyway. If the Cabinet can do it, so can we. off this week it's Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol which according to Dominic Cummings we always intended to ditch because breaking international law is what everyone does twice before breakfast. Hashtag Frosty, otherwise known as negotiating chief Sir David Frost, has told the EU he's not happy with the protocol he helped write and wants it changed to cut out the role of the European Court of Justice in resolving disputes. Alex, the EU has made a counteroffer which sounds pretty generous to me. Tell us about it. So it's not exactly a counteroffer because that Frost speech preempted it. It's a counteroffer to the command paper the UK sent uh, a couple of months back. As, as I understand it, it offers basically a two-lane system, a green lane for goods heading to Northern Ireland as, a, as their final destination, including plant and animal products like sausages and medicines with minimal checks, and then a red lane for goods heading into the EU via Northern Ireland with full checks. It is generally seen as a very generous starting point for negotiations that addresses basically all the difficulties the UK had raised and goes further than most had expected. A Brussels contact of mine described it to me as pretty close to the maximum France is willing to concede right now. 
Having said that, the Commission largely expects it to fail. They think the UK is acting in bad faith and fully intends to trigger Article 16 a couple of weeks before Christmas, after a few weeks of pretending to negotiate, which is possibly why it is so generous to sort of show the UK up and why Frost's speech preempted it because, you know, having spent months jumping up and down about sausages, it would be weird to then be offered a deal on sausages and go, this is about more than sausages. <laughs> so so the day before he knew there was a, fa- a very sensible proposal coming, he organized some weird, weird speech. And I mean, the speech itself was so weird. I mean, the emotional impact of Ireland watching this Popinjay quote Burke, I can't even fathom. So I think he jumped on it uh, as if to say, whatever you offer us on sausages, it's too late now. <laughs> and flounced off. <laughs> as, a, as a encapsulation of how fucking weird our politics is, the sentence, whatever you offer us on sausages, it's too late now, kind of does bring the whole thing together. But it's true though, isn't it? That was basically the summary. Props for getting um, Poppinjay in there, Alex. But he is though, isn't he? I mean, he makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Well, at least it's about sausages rather than fish. Though, of course, there is fish going on in the background, but we won't talk about fish this week. That's for another time. What would triggering Article 16 mean, Alex? Oh, hell breaking loose. My contacts at the Commission tell me they've prepared a number of responses ready to go literally the day after the UK triggers the clause. And they're broadly along three lines. They will continue to negotiate through the joint group and trying to arbitrate. They will launch infringement proceedings against the UK, challenging whether the conditions for triggering Article 16 have in fact been met. And probably most importantly, they will initiate cross-retaliation via the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. That's the main free trade agreement that the UK has with the EU, which means I would guess targeted tariffs and or quotas where it hurts the UK the most. Possibly even Scotch whiskey, um, which I believe is Frosty's former employer. But, yeah. <laughs> That'd be quite uh, poetic. Yeah, are we looking at a trade war here? And what would that mean? Yeah, so, um, well, so let's, let's, can we um, separate them out? Okay, so you, you've got Article 16. And Article 16 is an odd beast. Like, it, it's quite self-contained in what happens when you trigger it. Um, so if you trigger it in a proportional way, in a manner that is consistent with the purpose of what's going on in the protocol... It kind of doesn't really go that far. You do your safeguarding things, that whatever you do that you think needs to fix the diversion of trade. And then the other party, after a month ostensibly, um, goes, oh, we're going to have to safeguard against your safeguard. And then you kind of get into this thing where every three months they chuck it back up to the joint committee of the UK and the EU and they talk about it. And it's kind of the expectation there is that it's a political solution. So if the UK triggered it for the reasons that it is there and in a proportional way, it shouldn't go any further. However, if they trigger it by blathering on about the European Court of Justice, I mean, I can't stress how mad it is to talk about the European Court of Justice. You know, there's a letter that Johnson sent Juncker when they first came up with the idea. said, we, you know, the quote is an all-island regulatory zone on the island of Ireland. I know that's got the word island in it like a million times, but you get the impression of what he's saying. It's one regulatory zone. The European Court is ultimately going to have a role in that. That's part of the foundation of the agreement. So if he does that, the Europeans will say, 
well, you've triggered this in the wrong way. So now we're going to launch a dispute against you. Now, they've already got two disputes against the UK that they paused in order to talk. And those disputes, and presumably this third one on the basis of the triggering, would not be in Article 16. Then you go back to the withdrawal agreement. And when you're in the withdrawal agreement, things get fucking serious very, very quickly because there's a clause there. It's 1782B, which says that if you have arbitration, if at the end of the arbitration, you know, that one of the parties refuses to accept the verdict, then you get taken right back, as Alex just said, into the TCA, into the trade agreement. And you can just start suspending parts of it. And it will be, a gr- you know, once you get to that stage, but that, that would probably take a couple of years, by the way. But once you get to that stage, you would have aggressive retaliatory tariffs. They would, you know, the EU's really good at this. They've looked at it. They did it with Donald Trump. They targeted exactly the bits that would hurt him electorally. So you would probably see tariffs that would hit places like the Red Wall that would try to make life for Johnson as difficult as humanly possible. And they would be entirely right, in my view, by the way, oh, because, yeah, of course. because to claim that in terms of trade, the protocol doesn't work as envisaged is, in my view, far-fetched but not ridiculous. But to claim that you want the European Court of Justice to be dropped as the ultimate arbiter, as if that was somehow hidden in the text of the protocol, is utterly ridiculous and shows that they agreed to the protocol in bad faith. Yeah, I mean, you can't. The moment that you mention the ECJ, you, you're off your tits. Like, it is, it is a completely insane thing to be saying. And it suggests that they're not serious. The only thing that, the best case scenario is that he thinks that all this sort of chest-thumping, jingoistic blather is part of a negotiation strategy, or at least makes him look good at home when they offer concessions. The worst case scenario is that he really fucking means it. If he really fucking means it, this is the pathway that we're going down, and it is it is very, very bad place. Ian, why has the protocol, which basically, to recap, keeps Northern Ireland in the single market to avoid triggering border tensions, why has it failed? Is it all Britain's fault? Was it ever workable? I don't really think so. I mean, you can alleviate the pain, you know, but we, we spent years on this podcast, you know, sort of going, you know, if you put the border, you know, in the middle of Ireland, you've got a problem with the peace process, you're separating those communities. If you put it in the Irish Sea, you're carving up the UK's territorial integrity. You know, this is, we also, it's impossible, right? Because what kind of fucking government would carve up its own territorial integrity when it comes to customs and regulations? And they did it, right? And we were shocked by that. And th- we are now seeing, you know, the consequences <laughs> of that movement. They knew what would happen. It's in their impact assessments. It's in their explanatory notes from 2019. It's all there. They understood what the consequences were. You know, when it comes to SPS checks, the sanitary and phytosanitary checks for agricultural products, you know, these are strict checks. They're on stuff like, you know, hormone-injected beef. They're the kind of checks that try to prevent diseases, for instance, getting into a territory, something which after the last 18 months, I think we'd be pretty fucking sympathetic toward. (laughs) You know, you, you have border inspection posts for that. You have some physical inspections for that. Now, I mean, you know, it was always going to be grim and maybe the EU could have been a bit more flexible. But the truth is, Britain never did any of the things it said it was going to do. Like it never really set up those border inspection posts. It told the Europeans I was going to give them all this kind of fucking information from shipping manifests because in, in exchange for the safety and security documentation that it was. And it never really did it. It suddenly went, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm not sure we can do that. It extended the grace periods unilaterally, which is as de facto a case 
of non-compliance as you could possibly fucking imagine. You know, to do that unilaterally, that you know, the Europe, if that stuff gets to arbitration, those existing European legal cases, they're not going to be a, a quick one. Money. It will yeah, be. A you quick know, my, my money's on the EU when it comes to the arbitration. <laughs> you know, you, it, you'd have a harder hard time finding a more open and shut case and this stuff. So it was always going to be bad. It is bad by definition, but it probably didn't need to be quite as bad as we have made it. Meanwhile, in Northern Ireland itself, a Belfast court has ruled that the newish leader of the DUP, Geoffrey Donaldson, can't keep boycotting cross-border talks with the Irish government. Naomi, what will Donaldson do now? I mean, it is such toddler stuff. The DUP have got themselves tied into pretzel-esque knots over the boycott of the North-South Ministerial Council, which was an essential strand of the Good Friday Agreement, which the DUP campaigned against in 1998, but which they claim they are protecting by opposing the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a result of a Brexit they campaigned for and that they and the Conservative governments have supported. Did I miss anything? I mean, you know, it's just <laughs> the broader context here is that Donaldson can see the polling for the DUP and it does not make happy reading for them. After being the largest party since 2005, they're currently joint fourth with the SDLP and the Alliance parties on 13%. And they're behind their two big rivals for unionist votes, the UUP now polling up to 16% and TUV, which is traditional Ulster voice on 14%. And of course, way, way, way behind Sinn Féin on 25%, who look now, you know, nailed on to become uh, the largest party at the next assembly elections, which are happening in May 2022. You know, the DUP's handling of Brexit when they held the whip hand at Westminster has just sort of seen their support collapse so when the DUP are in trouble, and um, if, we, you know, your question was, where, where does he go next? They always, always reach for the button labelled press here to announce that the Sinn Féin first minister will, will be there. They are the bogeyman to try and scare more unionists into backing them. And that's just bonkers because the, the first minister and deputy ministers have the exact same powers. And it's led to Donaldson threatening that if the DUP are not elected as the largest party at the next election, they're not going to form government which gives you an insight into their commitment to democracy, frankly. It just turns out that if you spend 40 years telling people that the worst thing that can ever, ever, ever happen is a nationalist becoming first minister, the pressure is going to be on you to do something quite dramatic when that outcome actually starts to look very likely. There have been suggestions this week that the government doesn't want it to become obvious that Northern Ireland isn't suffering the same supply chain problems that the rest of the UK is having at the moment because it's still in the single market. <laughs> is that tinfoil hat stuff? And it explains possibly why we're back in Northern Ireland and triggering articles. Or, or is it credible? Or is this just you know, conspiracy theory territory? I mean, obviously, COVID and other global market forces have had an impact on businesses and supply chains across the world. But we do have to ask why it is only Britain that is experiencing such serious shortages and the control group in this experiment is Northern Ireland it's part of the UK but within the EU customs union and single market it doesn't have the the fuel station closures that that we've had in the rest of the country they haven't got any CO2 shortages and they had a very similar problem with COVID-19 in, in terms of rates and government reaction to it with this current shower in charge all manner of horrible things are possible and I think this is part of it but I don't think it's the only concern and I genuinely believe that while the government don't give two hoots about what goes on in Northern 
Ireland, they do see United Ireland as a threat, whether, you know, from a, a sense of residual colonialism or just loyalty to the UK brand. And despite everything that they've done to increase the chance of it happening, they're determined that the breakup of the UK, whether by Scotland or Northern Ireland, isn't going to happen under their watch. Now, Home Office Minister Damien Hines has claimed that Boris Johnson going on holiday was good for the whole country. He has a point, but perhaps not the one he thinks. <laughs> Naomi, at the weekend, we saw the Treasury slap down the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, rather hard. Um, the impression was not one of a unified government. Mm-hmm. So a week on after Johnson's party conference speech, which we had things to say about last week on A Good What Now, has it made any impact beyond the security cordon in Manchester? I will I will answer your question, but I do just want to briefly talk about that spat, which, you know, felt delicious when, you know, those of us that don't support this government were reading it and thinking, oh, look, they're all falling out with each other. But actually, they train their guns on one another when there isn't really any opposition to fight. You know, this is an incredibly disciplined party when it comes to defeating the enemy. So if they feel they have the bandwidth to turn on each other, I think that's actually quite worrying because they, they just don't see those threats. Answering your question more specifically, the opinion polls don't seem to have shifted very much at all. Um, there haven't actually been that many Westminster voting attention polls this week, but sort of no change for the Conservatives in one and I think down a point or two in the other one. And I hope and actually do expect that maybe the COVID assessment report that we're going to be discussing later will have more of an impact on conservative polling numbers. We obsess over these things because we're nerds, but I'm not sure how much it really cuts through, particularly if you you can't listen to what's going on at Tory party conference because you're in the queue for a petrol station or whatever it is. It is worth, I think, remembering that the opinion poll found that more people approved of Starmer's speech than Johnson's. Starmer scored higher. I think 63% said they agreed with what he said um, uh, and 57% saying he sounded strong. Johnson, I think, was only 51% said they agreed with what he said and 53% said he sounded strong. But that's of those, obviously, who watched it or were prompted to watch it because they were then being polled. So I don't think it has had a huge amount of cut through with the country, no. Ian, we've seen a distinct switch in the Conservative narrative in the past couple of weeks from denying there are serious supply chain issues at all to denying they were caused by Brexit to trying to make a virtue out of them as the necessary pain involved in making Britain less dependent on migrant labour. How credible is that story? I know it doesn't stack up. You know it doesn't stack up. But how is that a story which you think they will run with? They will because they've got nothing else. I mean, it's worth taking a moment just to fucking just to consider that the extent of the double think that that we're just a wash in it. I can say double think because Dorian's not on the show that we're watching <laughs> every day. Like, cause you know, thinking about that conference speech and, and the message of it, you know, it's, it's a complete disintegration of truth. You know, it's sort of, a, so the message, the message to the public at the moment is, Oh, it's an international crisis. It's not just about here, but also we are specifically doing stuff here. So it is sort of about here. You know, we're, we're, it's a result of us ending free movement, getting rid of immigrants, but also simultaneously we're going to beg immigrants to come back so that they can help us with it. And it's a result of Brexit, but also not a result of Brexit, if you think about that in a bad way. There's just this, you know, if you, if you try to maintain your sanity while listening to this stuff, it's, it's actually quite difficult. And you have to sort of keep contact with, with other people who aren't, you know, who aren't, who aren't losing their minds over it just in order to maintain. 
It's also obviously ineffective, as you have said. I mean, on any of the conditions that he's talking, none of it does what he says it's doing. You know, if you if you create labor shortages, you are not rising wages apart from in these isolated areas. You're worsening the cost of living crisis. You're triggering further inflation. You're making everyone poorer. But the, to be honest, this week I was chatting with um, I was chatting with some sort of currency experts and people like looking at the currency markets, and they were looking. They're a bit worried about sterling and you can't go too far with it we don't know what it is right now but generally speaking with currencies you know if you think there's there's inflation and then you know you're expecting the central bank to raise interest rates you would expect you know a rise in the currency and that's what we've seen with the dollar and it's what we've seen with the euro we're not seeing it with sterling and people are a bit confused by that it's just like well why the fuck isn't that happening and it partly has to do with all the crises hitting the uk at the same time including brexit but also you know you know soaring fuel prices and all of that and but what gets them is partly that johnson speech concerned quite a lot of people because they're looking at it and being like what just on the argument he's making is evidently gibbering illiterate bullshit and that's quite concerning in itself economically but also the moment that he says well this is government policy it's government policy that we have shortages, that this situation mm. pertains. That's when actually investors start getting quite nervous because they're like, well, mm. oh, right, so you're not even trying to fucking fix it. Like, you want this to happen. Yeah. This, is the, this is the situation you're aiming for. So even by, not only is it nonsense on its own basis, but by virtue of him saying it, he worsens the conditions which forced him to say it in the first place. Does he think he's trying to channel Thatcher during the early 80s, say, with her struggles with millions unemployed, miners' strike and so on, or Churchill during the war. Is this the narrative that he's trying to set up? Because we know Johnson is all about narrative. He's all about story. Yeah, yeah, but he's, you know, but the narr- But this time the narrative has been forced on him, you know. He's like a man that's pissed himself and then says he's wearing yellow trousers. Like, he's just, you know, this is like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's all post-hoc rationalised. You know, there's no, there's no fucking, you know, he's, he's had the narrative force. And I think that really is a big qualitative distinction to the kind of messaging that we've seen from him before. And also Thatcher and Churchill, their rhetorical strategy was to go for gravity when these things were happening. And he's instead going build back badger. So. So, so, you know, he's, he may be channeling the narrative, but he's not channeling the tone and the tone matters. We talked a bit about inflation just now. Higher wages and shortages, obviously, those are going to lead to inflation. How worried should we be about that? We haven't had high inflation for a long time, have we? Look, in, inflation is, is an inherent risk in an overheating economy. The problem here is that the economy is not overheating. <laughs> it's not even heating. So the, the latest ONS figures were, were out this week. August has been downgraded from an estimated anemic 0.1% growth to an actual 0.1% contraction. September came in below the ONS forecast, largely because construction has ground to a halt because of lack of skilled labor and high cost of materials. If you can't put shovels in the ground, that is not a good thing for the economy recovering. So you get shortages, both of labor and goods, which are pushing prices and wages up without an equivalent increase in productivity. Productivity, as a matter of fact, is forecast to go down, and we were already low on productivity. This means not inflation, but that 
economist beast dreaded stagflation, which is prices going up while the economy is stagnant. That is a big, big problem. At the same time, you have a prime minister standing there saying, well, who cares? People have more money in their, in their pocket. Well, okay. he would have loved, he would have loved Greece in the thirties. You know, people were making fucking millions of drachma, but it cost millions to get a loaf of bread. <laughs> and it's it's the Brexiter argument at the moment. You know, I've been doing radio with Richard Tice today and others, and it's okay. it's all, oh, well, what are your anti-hire wages oh. for HG drivers? Isn't it great that we're finally paying them what they deserve? And it's like, well, yes. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if nurses had got more than a 1% pay rise when they're now facing well over 4% inflation rates? Real terms cuts for most people mm, um, mm. in terms of their purchasing power. So yeah, don't let the Brexiters away with it. Keep baffling, Alex. Well, speaking of wages rising, there are reports that the government could raise the minimum wage after reversing the £20 uplink in universal credit during the pandemic. I mean, employers were going to be delighted with that, obviously, especially with the national insurance hike, which is increasing all their costs already. Do you think business is starting to chafe at Johnson's efforts to shove all the responsibility for our problems onto onto them? Yes, yes. And the evidence from the UK Trade and Business Commission, which um, Best Written Acts of Secretariat for bears that out, you know, no matter what the size of business, no matter which part of the UK they're in, no matter which sector they're in, they are all now beginning to find their voice. I think on the day of his conference speech, it was the Federation of Small Businesses uh, leader who, who said the Prime Minister has effectively walked off the pitch. And on the same day, there was a wet wipes company whose CEO, after hearing build back butter, told Johnson to shove his butter up his backside if he likes alliterations. Um, uh, we've had supermarkets, high street chains and others coming out on the need for the government to do more. Um, some are being, you know, unambiguous, I would say, at best on why they're not investing in the UK. For instance, Intel, who have decided not to, to create their new plant in the UK, just underlying how hollow the government pledge is for, for high skilled jobs. It's good that, that bigger brands are sort of finally weighing in on this. I mean, where were they five years ago? We'll all ask ourselves, but um, better late than never, huh? Another strand of the government narrative is that people need to get back to the office and then the economy will get going again. And we're all being held back by our failure to to get jump on the train every day or the bus. And Ian Duncan Smith, who was born in 1954, used a column in the mail this week to complain about this lack of workers in the office, saying that they even showed up during the Blitz um, <laughs> when they when they could have zoomed in, obviously. So they chose not to. Um, what, Ian, what is this obsession with presenteeism that they seem to have? I mean, and, there, and lots of people have talked, and I bet that there's some element of truth to it, that, you know, it's sort of landlords and, you know, property owners and, and you know, putting the pressure on. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. But, but ultimately, I do think, like, they are just reactionaries. And I mean, in the sort of, you know, original sense of the word, you know, they, they don't like the idea of societal change. <laughs> it scares them and it makes them feel like maybe they have little willies. And so you get into the situation where, you know, they, they start screaming and shouting about anything that looks like a fundamental adaptation of the world that they're used to. The, the insane thing about this is we, you, you couldn't do much better for levelling up than encouraging this process to happen. You know, like recently, because I've been on the book tour thing, you end up in sort of places that are not in London. It's a fucking disaster, but you end up there anyway. And 
often they're sort of like two hours out or something and you're looking around and you're like, oh, this is really very nice here, you know, oh, but you wouldn't be able to get to that. And then you think, well, the thing is, if you had to go into London every day, you know, that'd be a four hour commute day. But if you were, if you were going into the office twice a week, you probably would consider living mm. in a place like this. You know, you could handle a four, you know, eight hours of commuting a week. And that kind of thought process will be going on with people all over the place. They'll be moving probably out from urban centers. There's some people, by the way, that say electorally, that could have quite a damaging effect on the Tories of actually, you know, you would have younger families moving out into sort of constituencies that are currently quite safe and might not become safe rather than having all those votes pile up endlessly in the city doing nothing for Labour. You know, you would do a lot for levelling up for people's basic quality of life. You would help employers by reducing their rental costs. This is an outcome. It's extraordinary to just see that there's this thing that we've almost sort of stumbled on of of just a much better way of living life and and of encouraging the economy. And of course, you can't have that. Ian Duncan Smith says, yeah, just fucking kill it dead. (laughs) Alex, the prospects of shortages at Christmas has led some Brexiters to argue that eating and presents aren't the true meaning of the festival. <laughs> and we, we do know that because many of us were banned from actually seeing each other last Christmas. Though, of course, we could still eat and exchange presents. But why do the Conservatives find these austerity narratives so compelling still? And do they actually cut through the public? Well, the short answer is because they only ever apply to other people. Johnson is not going to go without turkey and all the trimmings in one or four holidays, nor is Isabel Oakeshott or Claire Foges or Ian Duncan Smith. They will all, their tables will be full. They will not experience this. They simply hark back to a time when us plebs knew our place and didn't complain about stuff. That's all it is. It's class war, pure and simple. And it's so elegantly waged that they have large swathes of the north of England right now cheering for the boot as it actually stamps on their face. Two Commons committees published a report called Coronavirus Lessons Learned to Date on Tuesday. It wasn't entirely negative. The vaccine task force gets a lot of praise, but there was plenty of criticism, a lot of it damning. It caused the government's early pandemic response one of the worst public health failures in UK history. Tens of thousands of deaths from COVID could have been avoided. Ian, the report says the government fell prey to groupthink and it was resigned to suffering through a few awful months in order to achieve herd immunity. Why was it not clear to them, and indeed Sage as well, who thought people wouldn't stick to a lockdown, that the public wouldn't countenance hospitals being overwhelmed and people dying without care? I think that's an almost impossible question to answer because I can't understand how they didn't get it. And in fact, you look at over and over on various issues, you know, like masks. Do you remember that nonsense comment of, oh, masks make it more dangerous because it makes people too confident? And the statement that somehow came out of them that travel didn't make a difference. So there was no point closing the border. And you're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? How can you possibly have reached these conclusions? But then that's the thing about groupthink. You know, that's the thing is that you you create the boundaries of your comprehension. You exclude that which, you know, might pierce it. And that did take place in science. You know, I think we got into a weird position, especially because it came almost like a domino right off the back of the Brexit 
debate where it was all, you know, where you're once saying listen to the experts and others saying you don't, have, you can ignore the experts. And that kind of got transmitted into this. But the truth was there was no comparison. You know, we were dealing with something that really hadn't been seen before and that none of the plans really worked for. There wasn't really any evidence to base it on versus talking to experts before with Brexit, where it's like, well, this is what happens if you erect a trade barrier. We have a lot of empirical evidence about how this thing plays out. So, I mean, that what the, the science group thing is a major part of the problem. But then you've got to think about how is it that politicians respond to the scientific advice that they get? And what we have is a generation of politicians that don't really have the capacity to critically inquire. Okay. And that is systematic. You know, that is, that is a, you know, we talk about things like, oh, parliament will scrutinize the bill. We say these words as if they still mean something. MPs don't have fucking powers of scrutiny. They don't have the capacity for scrutiny. Most of what MPs do is constituency work. It's essentially, you know, glorified and nothing wrong with it, but it's glorified. It's social, it's social work, essentially. Like they do not have the interest when you have people, I speak to people, you know, socially who go, who have gone into parliament, who have offered to help them do the critical analysis of legislation. They have absolutely no fucking interest in that whatsoever. You know, and politically, who are the guys that get chosen to go up to cabinet level who have senior positions? They're not ones who have demonstrated critical capacity. Mm-hmm. They're people who have demonstrated that they will vote the way that they're fucking told. And so then what you get is a political system where people just do not have that critical capacity, where they won't ask scientists that question. So when the science does start getting things wrong, when there is groupthink within scientific circles, you don't have people around them who have the ability to inquire as to what might be going wrong. And then you get yourself into the kind of situation that we saw. That's only part of it, of course, and the government really had no excuses, even in March, let alone in fucking autumn. But that is a core part of it. I also think that groupthink lets them off the hook. And Steve Reicher has actually got a very good piece on this in the in the BMJ um, that, that's worth people reading if they can get access to it. And he's right. You know, groupthink is not an excuse. There were other governments that were providing not only evidence of what was working with them, but 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 warning, um, notably Italy, and all of that was ignored. So um, I, I really don't want people to sort of focus in too much on the groupthink thing because I feel like that is designed to slightly allow the government a bit of wriggle room on this and it has to be laid at their feet. Yeah, it's it's a sort of, it's a way to diffuse blame to say, well, it was everyone. Yeah. Well, a lot of um, this report, you know, it, it quotes Dominic Cummings very extensively and clearly it was, that was very much Cummings' mm. line that it was groupthink that was responsible for it, i.e. other mm. people, not mm. him because he's a free original thinker. <laughs> Alex, the decision to discharge infected patients from hospitals into care homes came in for special criticism. How did that happen? In short, the report concludes that the NHS was prioritised over social care. I think it says that in actually those terms. The drive to free up acute beds was such that basically the audit came down, get rid of anyone not in immediate medical danger, just get rid of them. And I'm afraid it's difficult to come to any other conclusion than that the lives of older people were seen as less worth protecting compared to even potential younger patients. It didn't have to be that way, you know. They they took evidence from Isabel Halletz, who is the chief executive officer of the German Care Home Employers Association, in May 2020, and she said to the uh, joint committees that the discharge of 
patients from hospitals to care home was a very hot topic in, in discussions with the Federal Ministry of Health in Germany and the local health authorities, but they saw a really big risk for residents living in long-term care from patients coming in from hospital or new residents. And they they landed on this notion that they, they had to either provide a negative test result or to make sure they were quarantined for, for 14 days. I mean, it's not rocket science, actually, especially when you're not the first country to be hit by this. All you have to do is look over there at Italy, look over there at France, at what is happening with their care homes to identify precisely the dangers because we were literally four or five weeks behind them on the curve. So I think there was also a notion of exceptionalism that Italy are somehow shit and we're going to be much better at everything than the Italians are. When in truth, actually, the health system in northern Italy, which was hit very, very hard, is on a par with the NHS, if not better. And of course, Italy, I think, has now vaccinated far more people than the UK. Yeah, we never hear about that anymore. One of the things that most shocked me about the report was a section on people with learning disabilities who suffered enormously during the pandemic because all their support services were taken away as so many things were during lockdown and they were more likely to die from covid and in some cases that is because they were given do not resuscitate orders because they had a learning disability because their lives basically were just not seen as valuable naomi what does that say about us as a as a country i mean it just seems something so fundamental i mean i, I hope it doesn't say anything about us collectively but 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 certainly you know those that were guilty of, of letting this happen um I, I think people with learning disabilities were 3.6 times more likely to die from covid than those without and um, i haven't fully read the report on this section but i i believe it was fairly localized in some areas that the dnr orders became rolled up in this and and you know it was accidental but nonetheless completely unforgivable it speaks to the point about care homes uh, that, that alex was talking about this othering that you know there are those who if they die does it matter as much it is the sentiment that it feels was there, whether it was with the elderly or, you know, unwell who were in care homes, because let's remember it is not only the elderly that are resident in those homes. Um, you know, people with other needs go there, uh, if not for, for respite, you know, permanently, if they can't be with their families. And the obese, and that was another sort of big, big part of the report. Um, and the narrative was, oh, well, you know, if you died, it was probably, or got very ill, it was probably because you were overweight and being overweight is your own fault. It's just this sort of disgusting callousness for those who aren't as stereotypically body beautiful and, and brain typical as the people that were meant to be looking after us all. I also think that the report is really notable on its silence for a lot of key areas. The catastrophic mismanagement of schools, the continued under-delivery of donations to COVAX, and no mention of long COVID in 151 pages. The report, therefore, of course, is absolutely no substitute for the full public inquiry that the government has promised and must commit to. And when I was listening to some people sort of trying to defend the report yesterday and saying, oh, you know, we, we couldn't have included long COVID because, you know, the government couldn't have been expected to have known about that. Actually, long 
non-COVID communities were reporting this from about May, June of 2020. And Mm. by August 2020, the very first report of the APPG on coronavirus that focused on long COVID was submitted to government. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a damning report, but it actually doesn't even scratch the surface of the guilt that, that uh, you know, this government needs to have lain at its feet. Yeah, it pulls its punches a bit on the second and third lockdowns. I was a bit surprised by that because, um, you know, it's quite it's relatively critical of late lockdown the, fir- uh, the first time. But then it says that with the third lockdown in particular, the government couldn't have seen the more contagious alpha variant coming. Ian, does that make sense to you? Or it seemed to me to be going a bit soft on the uh, government. It doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. Like we thought, you know what's incredible is when people, at least when we started this podcast, they, you know, people would make shit up about distant institutions and stuff in the future. And we could, you know, it sucked, but we could handle it. Now, the, the, watching Barclay go around the, 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 do the rounds talking about fucking hindsight, hindsight the whole time. He's thinking like, don't make shit up about something I only just lived through. I mean, I smoked way too much weed when I was a teenager, but I can still remember shit that happened 18 months ago. And I remember we sat there and the, the pressure on them to act in March 2020 was severe. People started adopting themselves what they thought the government should be doing, bringing their kids home from school, not going to the office. It was the public that led. The idea then that when we, when we sat week after week after week in autumn, in winter, saying, now is the time to act. If you remember that absolute catastrophic nonsense about saving Christmas that Boris Johnson used as a political attack against Keir Starmer for actually wanting him to take a responsible view of when you enact this stuff. We lived through that. We saw that ourselves. And look, Twitter is a shit chasm of the highest proportion. But if Twitter understood that it needed to happen and the government didn't, I think that doesn't really leave them with a leg to stand on. Alex, Test and Trace comes in for enormous criticism in the report. What are the highlights of it? What went so wrong with it? I mean, the, the amounts, the sums of money involved are colossal. Everything went wrong with it. I think one of the more satisfying aspects of the report, actually, is that it in part exonerates Public Health England, who had been blamed for a lot of this stuff. And in, instead it says, look, Public Health England was underfunded and overstretched And it it was good scientifically, but it just didn't have the operational capacity to deliver the the systems that were being asked for it at the scale and urgency required by by a pandemic. And I think that should lead to a wider conversation. I remember I wrote this this article around the floods, the catastrophic floods in 2013, I think it was, during Cameron's coalition government. And, and you know, where everyone was like, where is the government? Why is the go- isn't the government doing something to save us from the floods? And I was saying that when you have a government in place whose explicit aim is to shrink the state and to atrophy its institutions and to make sure its muscles are non-operational, you cannot then continually be surprised when there's a crisis and it turns out that the the state doesn't have the capacity or the muscle to act quickly and decisively. So I, I think there's a larger conversation to be had about what the role of the state should be, 
and what the you know what we should be funding, what we should have in place in terms of contingency arrangements and risk planning. But specifically on the test and trace, there's this sentence in the report, which I'm going to read to you, that I think encapsulates the failure of this government in a, in a, in a sort of perfect way. So they say for the first three months of the pandemic, this is a quote, testing capacity was treated as a parameter rather than a variable that could be changed by the Department of Health. I mean, that's it. About everything we've been discussing, these people are can only react to things. They have no proactive uh, uh, urgency or instinct to say, I need to take charge of this situation and do X. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where we consider what should go in the bin and what needs stockpiling in modern life. Thinking particularly of Brighton residents here, who've been told to keep their rubbish in their homes for the next few weeks because of a bin dispute. Sympathies to you guys. This week, it's Ian's go. What is overrated, Ian? I don't know how this is going to go down. James Bond is is overrated. Oh, no. Um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, go on. I've recently, I thought I would rewatch all the Daniel Craig ones, you know, in advance of the new one. I haven't seen the new one and maybe it's much better. Um, and it reminded me that actually like the first Daniel Craig one, Casino Royale, was really, really fucking good. And everything after it is just the most god awful trash. And, and I don't, I'm not even, you know, I get, I am like a parody of myself of like, I, I'm the kind of, like I do watch it and just generally think, Oh, isn't this a bit imperialist? <laughs> and it is a bit sexist. So I, there was a lot, as I was rewatching them, there was a point where I noticed I was actually literally wringing my hands as I was looking at it. And I thought, okay, maybe I should accept this isn't for me. But there is kind of a thing of like, in the, in the first film, you sort of get the sense of, oh, we're going to try and, you know, explore uh, a different thing of his character. Maybe he's like an old dinosaur, you know, but he's got to check. And why is he so fucked up towards women and blah, blah, blah. There's even a bit where, in the torture thing, they kind of allude to the idea that maybe he's lost his dick, which I thought would be a great thing. Like the best thing you can do to James Bond is to take his dick away. I think that makes him like full of much more data. <laughs> um, it's true, man. You fucking rewatch that film. They, they're quite, they really kind of wink pretty heavily of like, uh, maybe this man has no dick. Um, but then the rest of it just turns into complete rubbish. So James Bond, the truth of it is you try and you try and you try. And, and I really like Daniel Craig, but it is overrated. It's just not very good. Well, for an alternative perspective, you could listen to an episode of The Bunker, which came out of the weekend, <laughs> where I talked to... I'm not subtweeting where, you, I promise. Where I talked to Arthur Snell and the editor of the International Journal of James Bond Studies about um, Bonds with lots of spoilers. So anyway, but never mind. Underrated. What's underrated this weekend? Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible films are really, really fucking good, and they're much better than James Bond films. Um, you can skip two and three... Although you should watch one because one has too many people talk about Tom Cruise's running and Tom Cruise's running is very, very good. I like watching Tom Cruise run. I've played many drinking games where every time he runs in a movie, especially the firm, you have to start doing shots and that's great. However, what people don't talk about enough is his walking. Tom Cruise is very good at walking and he does some walking <laughs> when he comes out of the party where everyone's getting shot in Mission Impossible 1. That's some of the best walking you will ever see on screen. <laughs> All of the Mission Impossibles after four are basically what James Bond films would be like if James Bond films were good. 
Like the plot doesn't fucking matter. There's like a MacGuffin. Everyone's got to get the thing. It doesn't. Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody cares. Nobody even thinks that anybody cares. It's just an excuse to go to different, very beautiful locations and jump. It's an excuse for Tom Cruise to jump out of various vehicles in the air, <laughs> on land, or on water, which he does really, really fucking well. It's just much better. The simple, true, honest fact of it is that Mission Impossible is better than James Bond, and the world will be a better place when audiences realise that. You know they're all toy vehicles he's jumping out. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have far to fall. It's very easy for him. Well, Ian, I will not be stockpiling your opinion. I'll be putting it in the bin personally. (laughs) Since I fundamentally disagree, but perhaps that is a chat for another time. Now it's time for But Your Emails, where each week we answer questions from our Patreon supporters. This week, Grant says, I saw a little reported story about a judicial review to stop ministers from deleting their WhatsApp messages and was amazed to read that the government has been telling ministers to do exactly that, even though the law says their messages should be kept in the public interest. How are we supposed to keep track of how policy is made or even have accurate history books if ministers destroy the evidence? Is the law failing to keep up with technology again? I kind of love it when the question gives the answer. So what, what, how's that question? How are we supposed to keep track of how policy is made if ministers destroy the evidence? I think that's the point. <laughs> the, the ministers destroy the evidence, so we, we can't keep track of how policy made. I, I mean, the, the best case is that of Lord Bethel, isn't it? The darling of the good law, law project, um, who wrote to the government to ask for, for his messages to be retrieved, because apparently he granted some gigantic 85 million testing contract to a company called Abington Health, all via WhatsApp. Um, and so the Good Law Project has for the messages to be preserved. And the first response they got was that Lord Bethel had lost his phone, so he couldn't hand it over. Then a couple of weeks later, um, he abandoned that take and, and, and said that he was no longer using it be- because the phone was broken and he had moved on to a different device, which had <laughs> lost all his WhatsApp messages. And then they got a third story that said he actually handed it to a member of his family, that he had given his phone to his kid. And they deleted all the WhatsApp messages. And they deleted all the WhatsApp messages. I mean, okay, my homework. You genuinely couldn't make it up. These people are just straight up taking the piss. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian. Thank you very much. Alex. My thanks. And Naomi. Lovely to be on the show again. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Special thanks and a big hello from me to Karen Stenstam, Marianne, Joanne Scobie, Victoria Parkinson, Ingrid, Dave Schofield, John McLean and Jack Brudenell. Uh, hello from me to Gail, Reshi Sixstring, Neil Davies, Mark Mayo, Daniel Power, AJ Hackett, Jonathan Ebel and Jim Brimble. And big shout from me to Matthew Snodding, Maria Kingma, Rebecca Howards, Jeff Herman, Sarah McCluffrey, Russ CY25, 
Richard Allison and Gervais Miller. And for me, it's hello to Stefan Brugger, Mike Corners, Alex Rich, Deirdre Garvey, Jay Johansson, Kate Young, Anna Spiteri and Patrick Kessler. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers this week. No one should worry about being underqualified in a world where Matt Hancock has just been given a job helping Africa recover from COVID. <laughs> so we're asking, what thing that you are totally unqualified for do you strongly believe you could do anyway? Alex, you're famously multi-talented, but there must be something you can't do but want to. What is it? I'd love to be able to draw uh, or paint, or I'd love to be more artistic with my hands. I, I sort of marvel <laughs> at people who can do that. I'm really rubbish at it. I remember taking my niece when she was little to the London Zoo, and she's a, she's studying fine arts now. So it it wasn't a it wasn't an inflated impression that I have uh, I had as a proud uncle. But I remember her drawing the animals, and I remember that her hand was so sure. She knew the shape she wanted to draw, and the pencil sort of never left the page. And I I really can't do that. I'm rubbish at it. But um, in terms of something that I can do but would like to have done and didn't. I think I would have loved to have gone into a scientific discipline, but my mother had this habit of kind of pigeonholing the children. This one is good with sciences. This one is good with arts. And the idea was put in my head very early that I was rubbish at maths and physics and chemistry and all those things. And of course, I I didn't excel at them in school because I had it in my head that they weren't my thing. And it was only when I took my exams for joining the sort of upper levels of the civil service about 15, 20 years ago, when I, I found out that I came I came out in the top 0.01% in the maths test. In the numbers. That was a trailer for the bonus fringe event in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>